Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You truly are the one that makes a way where there seems to be no way. And Father, so many times we can't see it. We can't feel it. But you are at work in a hundred thousand ways every second of every day that we can't recognize. And so, Lord, in those moments when we don't see it, when we don't feel it, we trust you. We trust you. Lord, we thank you for these sweet moments in your presence. They are precious and sacred. Thank you. And Lord, would you speak to us through your word now? Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, please go to Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 13. We're going to pick up the text in verse 10. This past week, uh, I was thinking about this service. So exciting. We have some baptisms to celebrate here in just a moment. Uh, just amazing to see what the Lord is doing in people's lives. And I was thinking about myself as a teenager. When I was a teenager, I was feeling God call me into ministry. And the truth is, I really didn't know what all that meant. I didn't know how that was going to play itself out. But what I did was, uh, I, there were two men in my life, there were others, but two in particular who were pastors, and I began to, to talk with them on a regular basis and have conversations with them. And those conversations were so life-giving. Uh, they were so encouraging. They were so helpful to hear about all the things that God had done, that they had seen God do. It was just Amazing, And we talked about those harder things in life as well, uh, the challenges that comes along with not just being a pastor, but anyone who tries to minister in any way. And some of those conversations, I, I would ask, like, what, what are, what's, what's the hard part of ministry? And again, not just being a pastor or preaching, but any ministry. You know, what's the hard part of that? And, and part of what I was asking was, you know, what is it that you carry with you that's heavy on your heart? And the two people that I were talking to, one is named Frankie, he's still pastoring uh, the church that my grandfather used to pastor, and one is named Tim, Tim has gone on to be with the Lord, and, and both of them said the same thing. And, and actually, since I've had conversations with other pastors and ministry leaders, uh, since th these conversations began over 20 years ago, uh, they all say the same thing too. Uh, but it was those men who began to talk with me about ministry and how you'll carry this heaviness with you because they would talk to me about things like there'll be people who are a part of the ministry in some way and they'll consume a lot, but they really won't contribute. And you'll hate that for them. You know, you'll wish that there was a deeper investment because of the blessings that they get out of that. And they would talk about how there'll be people in, when you're in ministry who demand things from you or demand things from the church. Uh, they'll, they'll demand that when their kids are nursery age that the nursery is the very best nursery, but they won't necessarily serve or give to it. Or when their kids get a little older and they're children, then they'll demand that you have the very best kids ministry, but they're not necessarily going to serve or give to it. And then when their kids get a little older and they're teenagers, they'll demand that you have the very best student ministry on the planet, but they're not going to serve or give to it. Or worship. 
People will come in on Sundays and they'll demand that the worship be excellent, that everything go absolutely perfect, or you sing the songs they want to sing, or you do things in the time frame that they want it done, but they're not necessarily going to serve or give to it to make it better. Or missions, you know, that people will demand that your church be a church on mission, right? And we need to be going places around the world, but they're not going to go. They just want someone else to go. And these men begin to talk to me about how this is going to weigh heavy on your heart from time to time. You'll see people who want to consume, but they won't contribute. They'll make demands. And many times those demands are, if I don't get what I want or see what I want happen, I'll just leave and go somewhere else. Now, you maybe think I'm saying that because something's going on here. And the answer is no. But Jesus, in our text today, goes to church. And what Jesus encounters in church got me to thinking about the wisdom that Frankie and Tim instilled in me over 20 years ago. Because Jesus encounters some people on this day that really want to control while they consume the things of God. In verse 10, what we see in our text is that Jesus goes to the synagogue and was teaching on the Sabbath. Luke 4 tells us that this was his custom that Jesus' routine, his rhythm throughout the week was that he would go to the synagogue. Many times he would teach in the synagogue. But interesting point, he, as we are in Luke 13 here, this is actually the last time Jesus goes to church. The events that are about to unfold and about to take place as he's headed to Jerusalem is going to make it untenable where he can't go to church. So this is the last time Jesus goes to church, if you will, on the Sabbath. And we all know that last things matter, last words matter, last events matter, last actions matter. And we know that this particular story is important because the gospel writer Luke uses a very important word in verse 11. In verse 10, after he says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, verse 11 begins, and behold, behold, that word behold, whenever the scripture has behold there or look it is is saying something is about to happen that you need to make sure you understand, that you need to make sure that you see and you take hold of because something important is about to happen. God is about to intervene in some way in someone's life, and I want you to see it. So Luke says, and behold, I want you to see this. There was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. A part of what Dr. Luke wants us to see here is that there was a lady who was at church on the Sabbath. She was at the synagogue on the Sabbath, and she's bent over. She cannot stand up straight, and this has been the case for 18 years. And a part of what Luke is saying is, behold this moment. Make sure you see this picture, this scene in your mind, Luke is saying. And if you think about this lady who has suffered this chronic illness, and here in just a moment we'll see that it is the work of Satan. She has experienced this chronic illness. She's experienced this pain, but this speaks to me at least in two ways. And number one is that she did not use her pain, she did not use her illness as an excuse. She is not using her pain or illness as an excuse not to be there on that day. Now, I, I don't know exactly why she was there. I don't know her motives. I, I don't know her frequency of being there. I don't know that at all. 
But what I do know is that on this day, if anybody had an excuse not to be in the synagogue, it was this lady. For 18 years, she has had to stumble through life. She has had to work just to make it from point A to point B. But on this day, she is there, no excuses. Now, most modern day churchgoers, you know how we work, right? Like we like look for excuses on Sunday morning. It's like the alarm clock goes off and many times we were like, I want, well, wonder what the temperature is, right? Now notice I said modern day churchgoers. I didn't say modern day Christians because not everybody who goes to church is a Christian, but every Christian will go to church if they can, if they can. But we do, we look for excuses in the modern church, especially in the modern American church. We wake up in the morning, we say, oh, it's too hot. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, it's too rainy. It's too dry. Right? I'm too tired. You know, the service may run long. That preacher. It's amazing how that we we want the service to end right at one hour, don't we? Boy, it better end at one hour because I got to get home and eat lunch so I can watch my four-hour football game. Yeah? (laughs) Amen or oh me. Right? (laughs) And then if our team is behind and they they catch up and they tie and we go into overtime, we cheer. (laughs) But I know you're counting down to minutes now, right? (laughs) Don't look at them. This lady, she, she, she doesn't use her pain or illness as an excuse, nor does she use her pain or illness as a tool to blame God. She shows up on this day. She's around God's word being read, prayers being prayed, worship happening, and God's people. People who have serious, serious grudges toward God don't go into those kind of environments. People who have serious grudges toward God don't want to be around God's people. And if they are around God's people, they don't want any God talk, even though they're God's people. But this lady on this day, not only does she not use her pain or illness as an excuse why she can't be there, she also is not using her pain uh, as well as a way to blame God, as a tool to blame God. And again, I don't know why she's there, but notice what happens, verse 12. The text says, when Jesus saw her, Now, when Jesus looks at someone and he sees someone, he sees people differently than we see people. Whenever we see someone, we see their demeanors, we see if they're smiling or not, and we can kind of get a gauge on their emotional state at that moment. We see their outward appearance. But when Jesus sees someone, he sees so much more than that. When Jesus looks into the eyes of someone, he is able to know their history and their future. He is able to know, he knows that this lady for 18 years, week after week, month after month, year after year, and now going on two decades has been bent over and not able to stand up straight. He knows all of that about this lady. But as he's teaching in the synagogue, she comes in at some point and he saw her and he sees everything that she has been going through. Now at that moment, Jesus could have made a beeline straight for her, couldn't he? He could have said to this woman, he could have said, lady, lady, I know you've gone through a lot. You've been going through a lot for 18 years. Do not take another step in pain. Let me come to you. But he doesn't do that. Notice it says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. You see it? When Jesus saw her, he called her over. Again, Jesus could have made a beeline for her. 
He could have made it much easier in that moment. But in that moment, Jesus sees this lady, 18 years bent over, and he calls out to her, and he calls her to exercise and take a step of faith, just exercise a little faith, take a step in his direction in this moment. So many times what we do is we say, well, well God, when are you going to come to me? God, when are you going to come and heal me? God, when are you going to come and help me? God, when are you going to come and fix me? Or God, when are you going to come and fix this situation? And many times while we're saying to God, God, when are you going to come? God is in heaven sitting on his throne saying, when are you going to come? I've been calling out to you. I've been asking you to come to me. Just like on this day, Jesus and this lady here in the synagogue, he calls her over and all he wants is a step of faith in his direction. It's amazing how many times we become so passionate about the things of this life, isn't it? It's like whether it's fitness or diet or whatever it may be, uh, when we become passionate about something, we will inconvenience ourselves a lot for it. It's like our careers. We become passionate about our careers, and all of a sudden we say, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to have drive. I'm going to grow this thing. We're going to franchise out. We're going to make more money, and we just get very passionate about that. But then when it comes to our spiritual walk, all of a sudden we become very passive, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. But in this moment, Jesus calls out to this lady, and again, all he's asking her to do is exercise a little faith and step in his direction. Because it's amazing what God can do and how he can work through our bent over hobbling toward him. It's amazing what God can do when he can turn our stumbling toward him into standing before him. Now, I don't know why this woman went to church on this day. I really don't. But what I do know is that when God's people gather, God has a way of showing up in our midst. Just like on this day, she went to the synagogue and God in the flesh is there. He sees her, he calls her over, and she goes. And he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Verse 13 says, and he laid hands on her and immediately she was made straight and, notice this, she glorified God. Appropriate response. God moved in her life in a powerful way and her response was, and it's a choice, her response was to glorify God. God, when God works in our lives in authentic and powerful ways, in those ways in which we know it could only be God, we can't just chalk it up to coincidence. In those moments when God moves in our life, the appropriate response is to glorify him. And we have to make sure that when God is moving in our life, whether it's our life personally or our family or our church family or our work or whatever it is, that when God is moving, that we're not trying to steal the glory that only he should deserve. In this moment, she could have said, well, he told me to come over, and did you see me step toward him? Look what I did. She could have said, I had to take 10 steps to get to him. Look what I did. Look how I healed myself. She doesn't say that. Jesus sees her. He calls her over. She takes a step of faith in his direction. He touches her and prays for her, and she is healed, and her response is to erupt in glorifying God. And in the midst of this beautiful, amazing scene, we get to verse 14. All of this is going so well. Jesus has showed up at the synagogue. This woman is there after 18 years of suffering. Her step of faith, her stumbling toward Jesus 
has, he has reached out, touched her, and healed her. And then all of a sudden, but. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Notice what he's upset about. He's not upset that Jesus healed. Not at all. He's upset that Jesus had healed on the what? On the Sabbath. That's what he's mad about. So the ruler of the synagogue is upset with Jesus that he is now healed on the Sabbath. But notice what he does. He's upset that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people. He's upset with Jesus, but he didn't talk to Jesus. He says to the people. Modern psychological terms, that's called being passive-aggressive. The Greek term for that is called being a wimp. That's not a real Greek word. He says to the people, look what he says. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. That's what he's upset about. You know, put it this way, you know you are an unhealthy religious person when you are more concerned about God's timing than the God of time. You know you are an unhealthy religious person when you are more concerned about God's timing than the God of time. Again, he's fine with the healing. That's not his issue. He's actually fine with people consuming God's activity among them. And even he gets to claim a healing took place in my synagogue. He's fine with consuming all of that as long as it happens within his schedule. And he is claiming that his schedule is actually God's schedule. He says there are six days where work can be done. Healing is a work, so you can come and be healed then, but not today. No more today, he says. Verse 15 says, then the Lord answered him. Notice that. The ruler of the synagogue, he's mad at Jesus. He doesn't talk to Jesus. He talks to the people, right? Jesus hears this. He knows this. And notice how Luke refers to Jesus. He didn't say, and Jesus answered him. He says, and the Lord answered him. And the Lord is answering who? Him, the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus says directly to him, he says, you hypocrites. Again, talking to the ruler of the synagogue and all those who would be his underlings. You hypocrites. Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus looks at them. They're upset. The ruler's upset. Again, because of when God's activity was taking place, not the thing itself, not the healing itself, but when, Jesus looks at him and says, you're a hypocrite. You care more about your animals than you do this woman. But why did they care about their animals? You know why. In the first century world, your main income, one of the largest incomes was animals. See, the religious people of this day, they didn't care about their animals. They cared what they could consume, what they could get from their animals. That's what they really cared about. The religious people in Jesus' day, they would bend the law six ways to Sunday as long as it protected their income. 
And then they would sacrifice any person in need. If that person in need, if they can't help that need and it didn't fit within their religious consumer schedule. You see, we as modern followers of Christ, me as, we as the people of God today, we have to make sure that we don't slide into this thinking and oh, we can slide into this thinking so easily. We have to make sure that we don't slide into that thinking of, yeah, I like prayer and I'll pray, I'll pray when I need it. God, I'll let you know when I need something. You just stay up there, be nice, don't intervene too much, and I'll let you know when I need something. Or, or we say, oh yeah, I love the word of God. I love you know, hearing the word of God, and I love receiving the word of God as long as I'm spoon-fed the word of God. Or we say things like, well yeah, I'll give, I'll give if there's a little extra left over after I pay my Amazon bill. What I'm doing right now is called meddling, right? Yeah. Or, or we say, you know, yes, I'll serve. I'll serve when it's convenient. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if I don't have a better offer. You see, we have to be careful. We don't fall into this religious mindset where we, yes, we want to consume the things of God, but we want to control the timing of it all the time. We want to say, God, yes, uh, yes, of course I want you to use me, but uh, can that be on Tuesday between 7 and 8? Right? It's exactly what Jesus is running into on this day in church. In church. And then Luke writes verse 17. And he uses a very interesting word here. It says, as he, that is Jesus, said these things, meaning to the religious leaders, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Two categories. One was put to shame. One was rejoicing. One recognized that God was in their midst and God was moving in powerful and beautiful ways. And they were not concerned about trying to control God's timing on things. The religious leaders, on the other hand, because they felt like God should be subjected to their religious consumeristic schedule, put to shame. What we have to fight against, people, what we have to fight against is falling into, sliding into this idea that we can consume and we can control God. And one of the greatest, most shameful blotches on the modern church happens when our consumerism is exposed for what it really is. And all of a sudden, our agenda to get what we want and as much of it as we want, when we want it, when that overrides our ability and our willingness to help someone, to serve other people around us, when it's all about me in these moments and what I want, when I want it, and we forget there are people walking around us in pain all the time, and we cannot step out of our schedule to help them, that is a blot on the church. And we have to ask ourselves Again, as a modern church, are we going to play the role of the self-righteous? Are we going to be consumers and try to control what God does and when God does it? Or are we going to find ourselves in this text just like this woman? Are we going to see ourselves as the people who stumble into the presence of God? And in that moment, we find ourselves encountering Jesus, and he is the one that straightens us out. He is the one that straightens us up. Are we going to see ourselves as this woman walking in to be straightened up for his glory. And then we go tell other people, guess what? If he straightened me up, he can straighten you up and you can come anytime. Anytime. 
People talk about the church, and we describe the church in different ways, and people say, well, I want this in a church, and I want that in a church, and I want to see this happen, I want to see that happen, I want to see these numbers and all this stuff, and you know, whenever I hear all that, it's like, I just want to take that and kind of like throw it out the window. When I think about the church, when I think about us, I want us to be a people where other people can stumble in. And when they stumble in, they encounter this Jesus who straightens them up. And in straightening them up, God receives all kind of glory. And then we help those people go and, and tell others that they can come to. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church I want to see. That's the kind of church we see all throughout the book of Acts. We see a church not that's just setting another revenue goal, not that's just setting another number goal, not that's just looking at some other metric. We see a church where people can encounter Jesus. And my prayer is that we'll be that kind of church. What would it be if we came to church on Sunday and we come with the expectation that, man, a lot of us, we're just going to stumble right through the doorway. But he's going to be there. And today, he's going to straighten some people emotionally and mentally and spiritually and even physically. Today, he's going to walk over and call out someone's name and say, come to me, and he's going to touch and he's going to heal. And then we get to go spend the rest of the week telling other people, you can come anytime too. I think that's the church. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you because you gave your son to establish this beautiful mess called the church. And Lord, even today, this morning, we, we thank you as we've already sung and declared that you do the impossible. And even what we get to celebrate in these next few moments while we celebrate eight baptisms, Lord, I thank you for your work of grace in their life. And as we watch and participate with these baptisms, I pray that we would remember our own. And Father, that in our baptism, I pray that we would remember that now the old man that was on the inside of us is dead, buried, now the way we can live for you. We can walk straightened up for your glory. And we can tell others they can come too. So Lord, we rejoice today because you are once again moving among us. Thank you for being here, King Jesus. Thank you for doing what we cannot do. Thank you for leaving the throne to walk in our midst. We love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody say.